Well, this isn't supposed to happen, but I became a Christian at a big, public, pagan party school. And it was through the ministry of a Christian group on campus. But this group didn't just lead me to Jesus. It also taught me how to live the Christian life. I learned to have what's called a daily quiet time, the time you'd set aside each day to study the Bible. I also learned how to pray, how to share my faith, and many other foundational things. And I'm thankful for all of that, very thankful. But sometimes people in my campus group miss the point. For example, my junior year, my roommate was another student in our campus group, and in our dorm room, my roommate had a picture up, and this was a picture of a tiger, and this tiger had an angry face, a hungry look. It looked like the tiger was about ready to come through that picture and eat you alive, all right? Not exactly something you want to sleep next to, but there it was. And underneath the words of this angry, hungry tiger, it said, did you have your quiet time today? So I had not been a Christian that long, but I sensed that something wasn't right about this. Is the reason I study my Bible so that a tiger won't eat me? I think my roommate kind of missed the point, and sadly this became more evident as he quietly started to move uh, to the fringes of our group, ultimately leaving it all together. Well, the past four weeks we've been in a very important sermon series on the mission of the church. The mission of the church simply is the mission Jesus gave to it, and that's to make disciples among all people. And over the next several Sundays, Pastor John looked at three questions. What is a disciple? How are disciples made? And who makes disciples? And this morning we end by asking the most important of all questions, and that question is, why? You know, asking why is very important. Uh, small children will bury you to death asking you why, but there's a reason they ask this. It, it hones you. The question why focuses you. It helps you shut off what's non-essential. And if you don't ask why, you can drift. So why make disciples? Well, inherent in that question are a few other questions. Is making disciples the end or the means? Here's another question. If we do the things that make disciples, are we done? Or is there something more, a bigger goal we're looking for? Finally, if a church was to singularly orient around making disciples and everything it does, what is it we should see in the people in the congregation? All right. The answer is we should see a church with people who know God, love God, and worship God. So let's summarize it like this. Why make disciples? Because God wants people who know him, love him, and worship him Making disciples tells us 
if we're doing the mission of the church, but seeing people who increasingly know God, love God, and worship God, that tells us if we're making disciples. So that's how we'll organize this morning. Why do we make disciples? Three reasons. Because God wants people to know him, God wants people to love him, and God seeks true worshipers. So the first reason we make disciples is so that people will know God. We're going to be in several sections of Scripture. I encourage you to turn there with me. So if you will, please turn to your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, the first reason we make disciples is because God wants people to know him. God wants people to know him. That is a big thought. Just let it blow your mind. Knowing God. And your first reaction might be to challenge the idea that man can even know God. And frankly, that should challenge your thinking. But the truth that God, immortal, invisible, God only wise, beyond all our comprehension, must be held together with another biblical truth that God wants us to know him. God wants us to know him. In fact, this is the one of the great promises of God in the Bible. Now, Jeremiah chapter 31 is probably, I'd say, the, most, the second most famous passage from the book. Um, in chapter 31, verse 1, verse 31, rather, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What does this new covenant look like? Well, God explains in verses 33 and 34. The gateway into the covenant is God's initiative to forgive people. At the end of verse 34, he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's God who starts, who presses the gas, who initiates this covenant. But what else is this covenant? In verse 33, we read the words, I will, attributed to God four times. I will. And what will he do? God will make a covenant. God will put his law inside his people. God will write it on their hearts. And as a result, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. But what's at the very peak of this covenant? What does God want out of it? In verse 34, he says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The peak of the covenant is this, they shall all know me. Now, notice that word, all. The promise is not just that some people will know God. Maybe people with status or intellect. People who are capable, really, of that. No, he says everyone will know him. From the least to the greatest. And this is his promise. This is his promise. Is it fulfilled and seen? Is it the same promise we see in the New Testament 
And of course, the answer to that is yes. So let's turn now to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. In the Gospel of John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, we read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here, in what's called his high priestly prayer, Jesus says the same thing as Jeremiah chapter 31. The Son has authority over all flesh. Again, the word all. And what does the Son do with that authority? He gives eternal life to all the Father has given to him. And how, what, how does Jesus define eternal life? What is it? Eternal life, says Jesus, is that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Now, there are a lot of promises wrapped up in the gospel, but knowing God is at the very core. Knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ, his only son, is eternal life. Is this how you think about eternal life? Well, because of this, we see that knowing God then is really the true heartbeat of a disciple. If we were to take the pulse and the heartbeat, an EKG of a disciple, it's going to beat, beat, beat to know God. So let's turn now to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, just a few books over. This is a very familiar passage. Sometimes familiar passages have a way of not going deep with us because we think we know them. But let this one sink in. In this familiar passage, Paul says that one of the, true, one of the marks of true followers of Jesus is that true followers of Jesus don't put any confidence in the flesh. Now, by this he means that true followers of Jesus have no confidence in their own ability to get right with God. No confidence in their ability uh, to get into God's good favor. Well, we don't put any confidence in the flesh, Paul says. But despite this, he reminds his listeners that he himself actually has a lot of reasons for putting confidence in his flesh. In fact, many reasons, and these reasons are better than anyone else could come up with. This guy has really gained a lot in his life. What a biography, what a resume. He could get a great job in Washington, D.C. with that pedigree. But then he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and my share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
So what is at the very top of Paul's priority list? What has Paul found his faith to be all about? It's about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, verse 10. Again, he has faith in Christ so that I may know him. For Paul, there are not now many things. There's only one thing. And that one thing is of such great value that it has surpassed everything else. To Paul, everything in life has flatlined. Everything has become zero. In fact, everything has become less than zero. He considers everything, he says, and I love the way Peterson puts it in the message, everything to be dog dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. His priority is to know Jesus, to know him as Christ, as Messiah, as Savior. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to know what it's like to share in his sufferings. Knowing Christ for Paul means becoming like him. It means rising from the dead with him like he did. Now, what can we say about all of this? Well, we can say this pretty simply. Jesus followers are Jesus knowers. Jesus followers are Jesus knowers. And nothing else counts. So, what about you? Do you know Jesus? Note I didn't ask if you knew about Jesus. I asked, do you know Jesus? Well, sure I know him, you say. I read my Bible every day. In fact, I'm in multiple Bible studies. No one knows the Word of God like I do. I also pray or try to. Hey, but I come to church each week. And by the way, my church is Cornerstone, an evangelical free church. Well, to you, I say, great. All of those things are good things, helpful things. I highly recommend all of them. But have you missed the point? A disciple is not someone who checks boxes. And disciples, making disciples can never be reduced to that. No, being a disciple leads somewhere. It creates something. And what it creates is a heart that wants to know Jesus. And brothers and sisters, knowing him is not a burden. It's a joy. It's a privilege. It's a gift. It's life. In fact, it's eternal life. Who else do you know that has resurrection power? Who else do you know that's called the man of sorrows and invites you to share that with him? Who else says, this is how well you can know me. I will call you out of the grave by name. This morning, I want to renew you I want to bring you into focus. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent wants you to know him. 
Do you hear his invitation this morning? Well, the second reason we make disciples is because God wants people who love him. Jesus said love of God is, of course, the first and greatest commandment. In making disciples, Jesus said we're to teach everything he commanded. So this first and greatest commandment uh, surely must be at the very top since Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. So to learn what this looks like, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Back in the Old Testament at the beginning, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is commonly referred to as the farewell speech of Moses. I like that description. It's a speech to Israel. They're about ready to go in the promised land. Moses is, of course, not going with them. So these are his last words. This is like the, let me lean over to you and kind of whisper something very urgent before you go do something kind of thing. And in chapter 10, verse 12, Moses says, And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? This is a good question to ask. What does the Lord our God require of us? Well, Moses answers in verses 12 and 13 by saying God wants people to love him. And he uses words in those verses that describe what love for God looks like. We get this out of the abstract. What does love for God look like? Well, it means to fear God. He wants them to recognize the Lord is their ultimate reality. Loving God means to also walk in his ways. So love for God is an action verb. It's not standing still. It's something walking. It's a journey. It's in motion. Loving God also means to serve him and to keep his commandments and statutes. Again, in verse 20, Moses explains, love for God means fearing and serving God. It also means holding fast to God. We love to sing of God holding fast to us, a wonderful truth, but love for God is us holding fast to him. And it means swearing only in his name, that is making promises and commitments only according to his will. So if you say you love God, these are the things you should see. And as we make disciples, these are the things that we should look for. But Moses does a lot more, and Scripture often does, than just give us ways to think about love for God. Helpful is that Moses gives us a picture, a perfect picture of what it looks like to love God. In verse 16, he tells Israel to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And Moses gave this same command in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 where he again tells the people at the very peak of his farewell speech to circumcise themselves to the Lord. So there's the picture, a circumcised heart. But what does Moses mean and what does that have to do with making disciples who love God? Well, on the eighth day of life, a Jewish boy was to have the fold of the skin covering the end of his sexual organ cut off, and this rite was called circumcision. Now, this is admittedly odd, strange to us hearing this now, but it was significant to Jews, and in fact, to say it was significant was a bit of an understatement. God established circumcision in Genesis 17.11 as a visible, physical sign of the covenant between the Lord and his people. Now, there's a lot of theology to this, 
But for our purposes this morning, just keep in mind that circumcision was the physical cutting of the foreskin to show who the people of God were. So what then is circumcision of the heart? It's the same thing, but it's a spiritual cutting. It's a scalpel to the heart. And what is it meant to show? Well, a couple of sources are helpful. Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary says that when Moses used this term, circumcision of the heart, he used it as a symbol for purity of heart and readiness to hear and obey God. It's also a reference to repentance, a turning to God. The New International Encyclopedia of Bible Words explains circumcision of the heart like this. It says it's a faith-rooted, heart and soul, love for God that issues in behavior. It also says God has never been concerned for the symbol as a thing in itself. God cares about reality. So it is our heart's response to him that counts. For these reasons, circumcision of the heart is an absolutely perfect picture, a metaphor for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. At our conversion, our hearts were circumcised, cut by the Holy Spirit. We believed, we repented, and we returned to Jesus for our, turned to Jesus for our salvation. This is where we became past tense disciples. But we are also called to be disciples, to make disciples in the present tense. And we do it in the same way, a circumcised heart to God. I like to think of circumcision of the heart as a soft-heartedness to God, someone who's tender-hearted to the ways of God. Such a person is receptive to God. He or she is responsive to God. The person follows God closely. They, they take their cues from God. They're ready to do everything and anything he commands because they trust him. In a word, such a person is teachable. They're teachable. And that is the very essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, according to the Center for Disease Control, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. But heart disease is also the leading cause of death in the church. It's the leading way churches and disciples lose their way. So let's do a heart check on you this morning. You claim to be a disciple of Jesus. Can your heart rightly be described as circumcised? Now, how do I do that? I, I, I want to do that. I want to be more like that. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses offers a very good way to make your heart soft to God and cultivate a circumcised heart. Did you notice when John read it that the text isn't just filled with commands, but it's also filled with history? In verse 22, Moses reminds the people that when they first went down to Egypt, they were only 70 people. Now, though, the Lord their God has made him as numerous as the stars in heaven, of the heavens. And how did this happen? Well, Moses explains in verses 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, Although the heaven and heaven of heavens and earth and all that's in it belong to the Lord your God, yet, what a beautiful word, yet, 
The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. In verse 21, he says, He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So the way Moses seeks to create circumcised or soft hearts in the people is by the, having the people remember who God is, who they are and who they were, and what God has done for them. And the same applies to you. You also have to remember. Remember, once you were without hope and you were without God in the world, what a, what a scary place to live. Once you were not a people, once you hadn't received any mercy, once you were a sinner, yet the Lord set his heart in love on you. Christ died for you. He is your praise. He is your God. In his book, Humility, the Joy of Self-Forgetfulness, Gavin Ortland gives this helpful uh, analogy. He says, suppose you're approaching an extremely powerful king. You walk into the royal court, your footsteps echo in the marble, the ceiling is far above, gold glitters around the room. You look up at his high throne, you wait for him to speak. How does that feel? But now suppose the king gets off his throne and he rushes to you. He's been greatly worried about you. He has, in fact, put his life in great danger in order to help you. He embraces you and cries with relief that you are safe. Then he leads you to a huge table and serves you breakfast. How do you feel now? How could we not be softened? So this morning, I ask you, will you let be, your heart be softened to God? Will you pray, God, change me, mold me, make me more like Christ, your will, your way, for your glory. May God grant us the grace of circumcised hearts so that we might love him. Well, the third reason is we make disciples because God seeks true worshipers. And here, of course, we turn to John chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there as well. The Gospel of John back there in chapter 4, and John read for us this morning, uh, verses 19 to 26. Again, another very familiar passage. Jesus seemingly on detour in Samaria. That's one of the three provinces in Israel west of the Jordan River. And Samaria home was, was of course, it, you have to understand it, it was home to a race of people, a race of people. And Nelson's Bible Dictionary says this race of people had intermarried with foreigners, and for this reason the people of Samaria were shunned by Orthodox Jews. And this, this actually happens in lots of other countries around our world where people kind of intermix and others no longer view them as pure. But they weren't just a mixed race. They also were accused of being engaged in false worship. And there are many reasons for this, but the main reason is that the Samaritans, this race of people, had built a temple on Mount Gerizim, claiming that that location, and not the temple of God in Jerusalem, was the true place of worship. And here's Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman. It's around noon. They're near a water well, and it's just the two of them. 
Now, Jesus just met this woman, yet he somehow knew that she'd had five husbands and the man she had now was not her husband. Now, this is a shocking statement, awkward, right? You wouldn't say this probably out loud, but Jesus does. And this gives the woman insight that maybe this is like not a normal person she's talking to. Maybe this is someone sent by God. So she uses the opportunity to express out loud what she's, something she's never really understood. And in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And the thing is, she's not wrong. There was a time when all of Israel worshipped on Mount Gerizim. You can see that in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Joshua led a service there. So what she's saying is, you know, we all used to worship here, but now you say we all must worship there. And Jesus responds in verse 23 by telling her, it's not even a question that she's asked, but he says something's changed. And the change he describes is an hour. And it's a strange hour because it's an hour that's now here and is also coming. And what does this hour bring? Well, one thing it brings is worship the Father that Jesus said is not tied to a location. In this hour, Jesus says, worship of the Father will not be here or there. It will be here, there, and everywhere. But the hour also brings a change in the way worship happens. Jesus says now true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, while all this is stunning, Jesus says something in verse 23 that's perhaps the most stunning of all. He says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Have you ever thought about that? The Father seeks worshipers. God is actively in search of worshipers. Uh, He's looking to acquire and gain worshipers. He's going door to door. Okay, God is looking for people to worship him, but he only wants true worshipers. True worshipers. And you know, there was no lack of worship in Jesus' day. The Samaritans, for example, worshipped. But Jesus said that they worshipped what they didn't know. And that sounds like a lot of people today, doesn't it? Everyone worships. Everyone gives ultimate value and worth to something. In fact, we were created to worship. But most today fall in the category of Samaritans. People just worship what they don't know. But unfortunately, many people also fall in the category of the Jews. The Jews worshiped what they did know, and there were many, many devout Jews. For all their bad press, the Pharisees come to mind, for example, But Jesus said in both Matthew 15, 9 and Mark 7, 7 that their worship was done in vain. It was empty. And this was because the people honored God with their lips while all the time their hearts were far far from them. So a lot of people fall in these two categories. But not anymore, says Jesus. The hour is coming and has now come where there'll be a brand new category. And we can call that category true worshipers. Worship. I love John Piper's definition of worship. 
Piper says, when I speak of worship, I do not mean worship services. I mean the inner essence of treasuring God and its authentic expressions in what we say and sing and pray and do. What Piper's saying is that worship is expressed in many ways, but fundamentally it flows from a heart that treasures God, that puts ultimate value on God. It flows from a heart that draws near to God, a heart bowed before God. And all this happens because the Holy Spirit is bringing about worship in them. People like this we can safely call true worshipers. These are the worshipers God seeks. But why? Why does God seek such people to worship him? Isn't God maybe a little full of himself? Well, one commentator explains this passage like this. He says, this is not a self-centered need for praise from an insecure artist. This is the one who is worthy, who is seeking to give us the joy of doing what we were made to do. Enjoy him. We were made for God. We were made to experience him and respond in praise. God wants what is best for us, and there is nothing better he can give us than himself. All who seek happiness need to know God seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. A lot of people, all of us, seek happiness. You need to know God seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And this is the end goal of discipleship, to create worshipers. This is what we want to see And church, this is what we must see. People changed by the living God who authentically, not perfectly, in bits and starts, but increasingly orient everything in their life around God. We want people whose lives say, I worship you, almighty God. There is none like you. I worship you, O Prince of Peace. This is what I want to do. And I give you praise, for you are my righteousness. I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you. We make disciples because God seeks true worshipers. So this is what we want This is why we make disciples. God wants us to know him. It's to be our heartbeat. God wants us to love him with circumcised hearts. And God wants us to be true worshipers of him. This is the goal of making disciples. And discipleship is a means to that end. And this is a good place to end because that's how the story ends. It ends with a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If we are to be a church that truly makes disciples 
This is what we must keep in our sight. Now, some of you know the name Robert E. Coleman. He wrote a classic Christian book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. In a few years, Dr. Coleman was interviewed for another book called Disciple Shift. How does the church keep its focus on this kind of real, life-changing discipleship? Dr. Coleman answered, Keep your heart warm and your vision clear. Everything in this world is passing away, so set your affection on things above. Get your eye on the glory of God. Look to the day when the nations have finally heard the gospel and the redeemed of the Lord are gathered around the throne to praise the Lamb forever. This is the external reality. Anything that does not contribute to this destiny is an exercise in futility. And church, may it be so with us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. What a, what a privilege, what a great call to be disciples of Jesus, to be disciples of Christ. We confess how imperfectly we do that, how imperfectly we re reflect our master and teacher, but yet you call us, you forgive us, you love us, you, you want us, you want us to come to you. Thank you that you want us to know you, to love you, and that you seek true worshipers. May these things be true of us, may this be true of our church, may this be true of all Bible-believing churches in our area. May this be true of all people, we pray. Thank you, God. We worship you. We praise you. You are glorious. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for our final song.
Amen. Go with these words. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that his way may be known on the earth and his saving power among all nations. Amen.